Well, we have made it. We have made it to the end of Matthew. These are two and a half years. I invite you one last time to open your Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, as we read verses 16 through 20 together. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired and errant and infallible word? Matthew chapter 28 and verses 16 through 20. The Word of God. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Uh, Thus ends the reading of God's word. All flesh is like grass, and all of its uh, glory is like the flower of grass. That grass withers, and its, its flower falls. But the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. I wonder if I asked you privately uh, if you ever feel intimidated when you are sharing your faith. Or maybe you feel like you just don't know exactly what to say. Maybe you don't feel competent or equipped. A few weeks ago, I was flying home from uh, some board meetings in California And my seat assignment was changed in God's providence. And I ended up sitting next to this fellow who was coming to Gainesville for a visit. And it was just one of those conversations where the Lord gave me a very unique opportunity to share a little bit about my faith in Christ. And you know what? I was nervous the whole time. (laughs) Is that okay for a, a pastor to admit Someone who stands in the, in the pulpit every Sunday and preaches the Word of God. But I was. Uh, and I felt all along the way, while we were talking, like I, I wasn't explaining things quite as clearly as maybe I should. Uh, I felt along the way that there were, there were things I missed that I could have said differently or better And honestly, there were a couple of times in the conversation that I just chickened out from saying the right thing at the right moment. But as we were getting off the plane, I was able to exchange numbers with this fellow, and I was able to invite him to church. Uh, You see, I knew that the next day, this was on a Saturday, and I knew that the next day I was going to be preaching from this pulpit. I knew I was going to be preaching on the burial of Christ, how that burial reminds us that he really and truly died, that he remained under the power of sin, that uh, we might know that nothing short of God's curse for sin was being conquered. The wages of sin is death. But I also knew that I was going to be proclaiming that the gift of God was eternal life. 
It may come as a bit of a shock, but the truth of the matter is that I feel way more confident preaching the gospel here in this pulpit than I do sitting on an airplane or even over a cup of coffee with a friend or a neighbor. And I think there's probably many reasons for that. But I think the biggest reason for it is this, that this is the place that I know that God has ordained that the gospel should be proclaimed week in and week out. This is the place where God has commanded that disciples should be made, where they are baptized, as we'll have today, and where they are instructed and taught to obey all that Jesus has commanded. And, And so I know that with confidence, God is blessing the ministry of the word in his church. And so I want to encourage you that it is okay for you to feel nervous and to invite your friends to come to church because here you know that the word of God is going to be proclaimed boldly. And you know what? My friend came. He was in town for one weekend and he came and heard the gospel. And I've been able to continue texting with him and inviting him to a couple of faithful churches in San Diego, and, and I'm, I'm continuing to pray for him every week. I, I suspect that if that is true of me, that it is true of you. That when you read this end of Matthew's gospel, this grand finale where Jesus gives his great commission, I suspect that you have heard sermons on this text that have made you feel a little bit guilty, uh, made you feel like you're just not doing enough. But rather than feeling guilty today, I want you to go out of this place encouraged and rejoicing at what God has been doing in 2,000 years and how you get to be a part of that. The fact of the matter is that the Great Commission is not laid on the shoulders of every individual Christian equally. Uh, This burden of the Great Commission is given to the whole church, but within that church, specifically, it was given to those disciples, those whom Christ had commissioned as his apostles, those who would be laying the foundation of Christian discipleship. And so while it's true that we are all called to take opportunities to be salt and light in our communities and a faithful presence, to disciple our children and our friends, that burden of discipleship does not rest equally on all. And so today, as we consider this wonderful and familiar passage together, I really do want to encourage you as we think about our Savior's great commission. Uh, But just by way of transition here, uh, let me begin by saying briefly about the way in which this commission comes to us. As I said, we have been in Matthew now for two and a half years. It has been a long slog. Uh, But if we have learned anything along the way, we have learned this, that Matthew is presenting Jesus to us over and over again as the long-awaited king. Over and over again, Matthew has belabored this point. At the very first sentence of his gospel, Matthew identifies Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That is to say that he is the anointed king. Uh, 
And then he immediately moves into this royal genealogy where he rehearses Jesus' royal lineage. And in time, the question is raised, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? And we have heard that question being answered throughout the book time and time again. Most recently, uh, we heard it from the lips of Pilate, who asked, are you the king of the Jews? Uh, We have heard it in the ridicule and the malice of the crowds who said, Hail, Jesus, the King of the Jews. And we have read it on the sign that was mockingly affixed above the cross. Here is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And yet, what was said in mockery, because of the resurrection from the dead, God declares in victory. He says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He declares him to be the son of God in power when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places above all rule and all authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. And so in this book of Matthew, we read with joy about our coming king. We have contemplated with wonder his person. We have considered his proclamations throughout. We looked in depth at his passion. And now here at the end, we stand to hear, to embrace, and to obey his great commission. This comes to us as the commission of our king. King Jesus. And so today, as we reflect on this, let me just give you three points to help uh, hang your thoughts on. First, our King presents us with a great claim. Our King presents us with a great claim, the claim that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Uh, Secondly, our King presses us to a great commission to go into all the world and make disciples. And then finally, our King provides us with great comfort, the comfort that he will be with us uh, even to the end of the age. A great claim, a great commission, and a great comfort. I want you to imagine the scene for just a moment. Uh, The women have done what Jesus had told them to do. Uh, Matthew tells us that they went with fear and great joy to go and tell the disciples that Jesus was alive and that he was going to meet them in Galilee. And so now you have those 11 remaining disciples, and they have gathered to Galilee to some unspecified mountain, but a mountain that Jesus had directed them to. And there they are, waiting with anticipation. Jesus is alive, and they are going to see him. And Matthew says that when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. But some doubted? How does that fit in with all of this? A lot of ink has been spilled on those last three words, and I'll spare you most of the discussion. The main difficulty is with the word doubted itself. Uh, The word is used in other places, and it doesn't refer so much to doubt as in unbelief as it does with a sense of uncertainty or a sense of hesitation. Uh, For my part, I think it would probably be better translated this way, that when they saw him, they worshipped him, but with hesitation. 
Various scholars have offered different reasons for the uncertainty. For example, uh, Blomberg suggests that there's confusion about how they should behave in the presence of a supernaturally manifested and exalted holy being. Jesus is raised in glory and power. I think Calvin probably gives us the simplest answer uh, when he says this, that the meaning therefore appears to me to be that some first hesitated until Christ made a nearer and more familiar approach to them, but that when they certainly and absolutely recognized him, then they worshipped him because the splendor of his divine glory was manifest. The splendor of his divine glory was manifest. I think we need to remember that as Jesus has been raised up, he has undergone a glorious transformation. It's not simply that he has been raised from the dead. He has been raised from the dead in power. He has been declared the Son of God in power. He has been raised up in glory and honor and majesty. Again, Calvin says, he laid aside the form of a servant and nothing in his appearance was there but what was heavenly. It should remind us of the transfiguration. You remember, there was another mountain in this gospel. And you remember how Jesus took some of these same disciples up that mountain where he was transfigured before them. I wonder if this might be that same Galilean mountain. There we were, th- we were there back in chapter 17, where it literally tells us in Greek that he was metamorphosed before them. And the description of him is that his face was shining like the sun, like that angel who sat on the stone of the tomb, his face like, like lightning radiating. So the face of Christ had shone like the sun. We were given this moment's glimpse of that divine glory, a glimpse of the majesty of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ, a glimpse into that glory that is now on full, unveiled display in the resurrection of Jesus. How could they not fall before him and worship? How could they not be a little bit hesitant? How could they not be overwhelmed by the glory of his person? And I think that appearance in glory, uh, it undoubtedly undergirds the glorious claim that he makes here in verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The so-called Great Commission does not begin with a commission. It begins with a claim. That claim undergirds the commission. It is the basis for the commission. But without this claim, the Great Commission would be a meaningless mission. But because of this claim, the Great Commission is a powerful and unstoppable force. Who can stand in the way of the one to whom has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And you know that in this claim, Jesus is not just saying something about the power that he has been given. He has been given power. He's not just talking about his ability. He's talking about authority. It's one thing to have the power to do something, but not have the authority to do something. 
Authority is a legal right to exercise power. And the claim that Jesus is making here is that he is not just endowed with power, but he is endowed with authority to exercise power everywhere. Think of the scope and sphere of this authority. Uh, On the one hand, the authority is unlimited in scope. All authority has been given to me. And here, I hope you hear the echo of that great prophecy of Daniel 7. You remember where the Son of Man comes to appear before the Ancient of Days, before God himself. And there it says that to him is given dominion and glory and a kingdom, uh, that all the peoples and all the nations and all languages should serve him, whose dominion will be an everlasting dominion. The very authority and sovereignty of God are granted to Jesus. He has it by natural right, but now he is declared in the resurrection to be the Son of God in power. It is an unmistakable claim that permits no middle ground. Jesus is here being identified with the triune God, with the Father, and with the Spirit. And if the scope is unlimited, so is the sphere. It's all authority in heaven and on earth. That's just a Hebrew sort of way of saying everywhere in all of creation. Whether the visible realm inhabited by humanity or the invisible realm inhabited by angels, in raising his son from the dead, God has given his son authority over all. And that means that this is not just a cosmic claim, it means that it's also a very personal claim. It's a claim that all men everywhere have to reckon with. You all have to reckon with the claim that Jesus is Lord and that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, the times of ignorance God has overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has appointed and he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What is our response to this great claim? Do you believe it? Do you trust it? Does it fill you with joy and hope and believing? Or does it fill you with terror? Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord, whether in heaven or on earth. And however it strikes us, it is this all-encompassing claim to authority that is the basis for our Lord's great commission. So, having considered this claim, let's go on to consider the commission itself. We find the Great Commission in verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, just take notice how the commission itself is grounded in that claim that Jesus makes by that all-important word, therefore. Therefore, because I have all authority in heaven and on earth, go, therefore. Jesus' great claim to sovereign authority should fill the church with confidence as it goes out 
in fulfillment of the Great Commission. Uh, But notice also that there's something entirely new here. Uh, And that is the fact that Jesus is sending his disciples to go out, to go out to the nations. And as as we have been paying attention uh, to what Jesus has said throughout the gospel, this command to go out to the nations should immediately strike us as something that is new. Uh, Particularly because it stands in such great contrast to what he said earlier in the gospel. Remember how earlier in the gospel, in chapter 10, verse 5, Jesus said, don't go out. He said, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I realize that in 10.5 it says Gentiles, and here it says nations, but it's the same word. It's the same Greek word. The nations are the Gentiles. The Gentiles are the nations. And during his earthly ministry, prior to his resurrection, Jesus was telling his disciples, don't go to the nations. Go not, we might say. Instead, they were directed to go first to the kingdom of of God, the house of Israel only. But now, one of the most glorious things about the resurrection is that it brings a new age in which the gospel of the kingdom is going out. And what are they to do as they go out? They are to make disciples of all the nations. What does it mean to be a disciple? A disciple is very simply a follower of Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. It means to be a student and a follower of Jesus. In Jewish culture, a discipleship was something like we might think of an apprenticeship. Disciples would learn from their teacher, called a rabbi. And the goal was not just to learn from him, uh, but to actually become like him, uh, to become so proficient in his teaching, that they might themselves also become a rabbi and have disciples of their own. Uh, That was sort of the goal of a really good disciple, that they too might one day become a teacher and make disciples. But that is not the program for these disciples. Notice that these disciples never cease to be disciples themselves. They never make disciples for themselves. The disciples make more disciples for Jesus. That's, I think, what Jesus meant when he said back in chapter 23, you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And I think that's very important for us to hear, that we need to be careful in our zeal to obey the Great Commission, that we remember that we are not about the business of making disciples of ourselves. Our goal is to make more disciples for Jesus, even as we continue to be discipled by Jesus. We are not the center. He is the center. And in some ways, this work of discipleship is done by all of us, right? There's a very real sense in which we are all involved in the work of discipleship. Who can deny that faithful parents... Uh, like the parents who will present their children for baptism today, 
are discipling their children, vowing to pray with and for them, teaching them to read and understand the Bible, helping them to to memorize the catechism. Who can deny that this is a work of discipleship? Or the other, or the older brother or sister in Christ, who, who comes alongside another younger brother or sister and helps them to understand uh, the way of God more accurately. Who can deny that that is the work of discipleship? Helping others to be uh, more and better faithful followers of Jesus is a work of discipleship. So on the one hand, there's a sense in which the whole church is involved in this work of discipleship. And yet, on the other hand, there's a sense in which the work of discipleship is not the work of every member of the church, but particularly of those whom God has ordained and called to this task. After all, the main verb in this sentence, to make disciples, is explained by these participles, baptizing and teaching. To put it another way, Jesus says that his apostles will make disciples as they baptize them and as they teach them. That is a charge given specifically and expressly to the apostles as they go to make the disciples and then to those whom they lay hands on and ordain to gospel ministry. I hope and trust that you are not going around baptizing people. Uh, I hope that you do not have a pulpit set up somewhere in Gainesville. Um, For some, this is the particular call and work. So in the first place, disciples are made by baptism. Let's talk about baptism a little bit. Baptism into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This charge is given expressly to those who are ordained to gospel ministry. Uh, Baptism, we should say, is very clearly not something that the church has just invented. Baptism is rather an act that Christ himself has instituted to bring people into this covenantal relationship with the triune God. Disciples are baptized into the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what happens in baptism is that God is putting his name upon us. He's claiming us as his own. And he's calling us to follow Christ and to live as his children. In baptism, men and women, boys and girls, are brought into the family of God. Baptism is an act of an adoption. Just like when we adopted our daughter Daria, Marianne and I gave Daria our last name. We claimed her as our very own child. And now we call her to live as our child. God does that same thing for us. In baptism, he puts his name upon us. He claims us as his own, and he calls us to walk as children of God and to take up the obligations of the covenant. Now, that was not particularly surprising for the disciples. After all, they were Israelites. They knew that they were God's children, that they were God's sons, They knew that God had called Israel out of Egypt. Out of Egypt, I will call my son. Israel was his firstborn son. What is surprising for the disciples is that Jesus is now sending them out to make children of the nations, to make sons and daughters of God from among the Gentiles to those who are strangers to the covenants of promise. 
to those who are outside of God's household, and to bring them in and to give them an inheritance in the kingdom of God. But clearly, this discipleship process involves more than simply going out and baptizing. Baptizing is always to be attended by teaching. The word and the sacraments are always meant to go together. And so Jesus instructs them to teach others to observe all that I have commanded you. Discipleship is not just a one-time event. It is not just an evangelistic crusade. Discipleship must involve teaching others to follow everything that Jesus has commanded. It is not minimal. It is maximal. I once heard Ligon Duncan put it this way. He said, it's not the minimal amount of truth to the maximal amount of people. That is, it it, it is not the way we might think of it in terms of the philosophy of an evangelistic crusade where the goal is not so much to make disciples as it is to count decisions or to make converts. It's not the minimal amount of truth to the maximal amount of people. Nor is it the maximal amount of truth to the minimal amount of people. As though we might be content simply to be unconcerned about the lost as long as we had the faithful few. Because we are going to be so focused and rigorous in our theological instruction and teaching. No, rather, Duncan says, it's the maximal amount of truth to the maximal amount of people. The two are not in conflict. We can do both. We can be rigorous in our theology. We can proclaim the word of God faithfully and exegetically. And we can do it to as many as the Lord sends us to. And the glorious thing is that Christ promises his empowering presence to be with us in this commission. Even to the very end, the Great Commission comes with a word of great comfort. Jesus uh, finishes this gospel with these words, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Have you noticed the emphasis on the word all in this passage? First, Jesus tells us that he has all authority Uh, And then he commands us to make disciples of all the nations. And then he tells us to teach them all that he has commanded. And then he finishes with this word of comfort and assurance as he says, and behold, I am with you always. In Greek, it literally says, I am with you all the days. How many days? All the days. All the days to the end of the age all the days until days are no more. I will be with you every single day. Uh, In Hebrews 13, he tells us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What a comfort. And really, it's the same comfort that the book began with, isn't it? It's that comfort of the Emmanuel promise. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Who is with us? God is with us. Jesus is God with us. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him such that the church may go with confidence 
to all the nations, proclaiming the good news and all that he has commanded, making disciples, baptizing and teaching with the comfort of the presence of Jesus all of the days. Now, it's true that those official functions of discipleship, the functions of baptizing and teaching, belong to those uh, to whom Christ has ordained this ministry. But who is it that presents their children for baptism? It's you. Who is it that teaches them at home the scriptures and the catechism? It's you. Who is it that nurtures them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? It's you. You are very much involved in the Great Commission. And who is being a faithful presence in their communities? Who is seasoning their conversations with salt and letting their light shine? Who is sharing their testimony, inviting their friends and neighbors to church? Where the gospel is faithfully proclaimed, it's you. The whole church. The whole church is involved in the Great Commission. And and it brings us back to this fact that before anyone can make disciples, they must themselves be a disciple. They must themselves first have been discipled by Jesus. And so I would ask, who is it that is following Jesus? Who is it that is learning to obey all that he has commanded? Who is learning to trust him and rest in him for salvation? learning to delight in his will and to walk in his ways. It's you, beloved. You are involved in this great commission. And you have this promise that he's with you all of the days. Tomorrow when you wake up, he will be with you, with you in all of his power and all of his authority, with you in all of his triune love and grace, with you in all of his comfort. I'm about to go on sabbatical. This is the last sermon I'm going to preach from this pulpit for the next three months. I'm very grateful for the rest. And I will miss you. And I trust that you will miss me. And I will be longing for the day when I will lead you in worship again. But you will not miss Christ Because he will be with you all of these days. He will continue to disciple you. Through the good shepherds that he's given to this church. I trust you will be well fed by your pastor. Pastor Crawford. And Pastor Hop. You'll be well prayed for and well led by your elders. Your needs will be well attended to by your deacons. And you will minister to one another well. Each member doing its part as you grow up into the fullness of the stature of Christ. And the reason I can confidently say this is because you are not disciples of me. You're disciples of Jesus. You're disciples of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he will never leave you. And he will never forsake you but we'll be with you all of the days. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, how very grateful we are that we have the promise of your presence.
that you have not left us, you have not forsaken us, but you are with us every day in all of your power and all of your authority, that you are leading and guiding and shepherding your church, and that you have, you have given gifts to this church for that very purpose of making disciples. And Lord, we pray that this work of the Great Commission would continue to go forth. We rejoice uh, in the way that, it, that your churches have spread throughout all of the world uh, as the church has gone out to the nations. We are the nations, Lord, and here there is a church in Gainesville where the gospel is faithfully being proclaimed. Lord, we thank you for your presence, and we pray that you would help us as we do this work of discipleship ourselves, as we instruct our children, as we are a faithful presence in our communities, as we, we speak with our friends and neighbors, and, and as we bring them to worship, because the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would build us up in comfort and love and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And we're not done yet. Now we get the family meal. Now we get the family meal. Because that's what the Lord's Supper is. It is a family meal. It is a meal that all of those who profess the faith uh, get to receive together. Because it reminds us of the communion that we have, not only with our God, but the communion that we have with one another. Uh, and we are delighted that some of you get to receive this meal for the first time. And as you receive this meal, let me remind you of just a few things. First, our Savior says to do this in remembrance of him. As we come to this table and as he extends these to us, these signs to us, they are, are symbols representing his body and his blood. They immediately remind us of the sacrifice that he made upon the cross in order that we might be forgiven of our sins. But he is not dead. He is alive. Though he was delivered up for our trespasses, he was raised for our justification. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father on high. And it's, it's as though this, this table extends into heaven, where Jesus sits at the other end of it, and he gives you his own body and blood. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. But it's not only just something we do in remembrance of him, as though he were still dead. It's something that we do in communion with him, because he is alive. As we eat of this bread and drink of this wine, we participate in Christ and have communion with him. This is a way in which he nourishes our souls and strengthens us. Even as bread, physical bread and physical wine, strengthen the body, uh, so this sacrament strengthens us in the inner man. It strengthens our souls so that we might fulfill the obligations of the covenant and walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Now this meal, it should be said, is not for everyone. This is a family meal. This is a meal for those who belong to the family of Christ. And if so, if you have professed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you are a member of a church where the, the gospel is faithfully proclaimed, if you are walking in faith and repentance, then you are welcome to come and to join us in this meal. But if any of those things are not true of you, uh, let me just ask you to let these elements pass you by. But I would also call upon you not to let Christ pass you by. And he is here to be received by faith. He is continuing to make disciples. And if you desire 
to be a disciple of Christ and want to know more about what that means, let me encourage you to come and speak with me or speak with anyone in this congregation. We would love to talk more about what that means. But if you are a disciple of Jesus, then come, because this is a place where Jesus wants to encourage you in your faith and remind you that he's with you all the days, even to the very end of the age. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would take these ordinary elements then and set them apart for this holy use. O Lord, now as we come to your table, we are so grateful to have a seat here, to be adopted into your family, to have your name placed upon us in baptism, to be called your children, and to be walking as your children, to be professing to love you and to know you and to serve you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would take these ordinary elements of bread and wine and you would set them apart for this holy use, that as we receive them in faith, we might receive Christ and all of his benefits to us, all of his benefits of justification and adoption and sanctification, all of those benefits of peace and joy and love in the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do these things among us now, and we say it all in Jesus' name, amen.